0: Luke 15, starting in verse 11 and reading through the end of the chapter. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, For us to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not only revealed yourself to us in all that you have created but you have supremely, in a more comprehensive way, revealed yourself to us in your word. And Father, you haven't just revealed yourself to us, your person and your character, you have revealed to us the gospel, your plan of redemption that you foreordained before the beginning of time. And Father, you have now made known to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that as we come to behold the truths of the gospel, to behold the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as it is revealed to us in the Scriptures, that You would incline our hearts towards Yourself, that we might love You. Enlighten our minds, Father, we pray, that we might understand Your Word and that we might relish in it and rejoice in it and be radically transformed as a result of the gospel truths that are expounded here this morning. Holy Spirit, accompany, we desperately pray, the preaching of your word this morning. Because without you, it's just words. We ask this humbly, in accordance with Jesus' will, and therefore boldly, in his name. Amen. Well, I want to wish a happy Father's Day to all of the fathers that are here with us this morning, um, it's, a, it's a high calling to be a father. It's not an easy task as it seems our culture seems to know as a lot of fathers just seem to either not be diligent in it at all or they just, they just bail on the family altogether. But I'm thankful for you. I thank God for you fathers and um, it's probably interesting for a lot of you to see me someone looking so young, behind the pulpit on Father's Day because you would expect on a Father's Day Sunday to hear a sermon about how to be a good dad, how to be a good father. And usually that entails being married, having your own kids, neither of which I am, And not only those things, but having a few years of experience under your belt to be able to share some wisdom to other people uh, so they can in turn follow your example. So some of you are probably having to fight back the temptation to completely check out right now, especially you fathers. What in the world can he have to teach me about being a father? And to a certain extent, a very real extent, I completely agree with you. But I do feel uniquely qualified to preach to you fathers this morning for two reasons. Um, First of all, and this is kind of an opportunity for me to brag about my dad, just so you know. But first of all, I honestly have one of the best earthly fathers that a son could ask for. And he's not here this morning, so he doesn't get to hear me say this. But I want to do honor to him. And if I can be frank with you, the older I get... I don't know if you have this experience, the more frequently I find myself thanking God for my dad. As I look around the cultural landscape, I realize that growing up, I didn't realize what an incredible dad I had. I took him for granted. But the older I get, the more I find myself thanking my God, my heavenly father, for the earthly father that he's blessed me with. And if I could describe my dad in one word, it would be faithful. He was consistently faithful to God, faithful to my mom, faithful to us kids, and faithful to his calling as a minister of the gospel. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not under any illusions that he was perfect, but he certainly was faithful. So I feel qualified to speak to you fathers this morning. First of all, because I had an exemplary earthly father. And the second reason, and the most important reason, is because I have a perfect heavenly father. And so this morning, I want to spend the majority of the time just pointing you to Him. I'm not going to stand up here and tell all of you fathers how best to raise your children because the fact of the matter is I don't have any experience in that at all. Maybe someday, I'm hoping, I get to preach that sermon. But this morning is not it. This morning, I want to talk to you about something infinitely more important than the how-tos of fatherhood. I want to talk to you about the motivation for why we should want to be good fathers. And the key is realizing our identity as sons of our Heavenly Father. That's the key, is realizing and rejoicing and relishing in the truth that we are adopted sons of our Heavenly Father. And I realize that for some of us, it's difficult to get excited about the thought of God being our Father. Because a lot of us have had fairly poor examples of what a father is. We haven't had good examples of what it looks like to be a good earthly father. Many of us grew up with fathers who were absent, either because they abandoned us completely or because they were so busy doing other things that they didn't have time to be with us, to be around. Or even worse, perhaps some of you here this morning, your fathers actually actively abused you, either verbally or physically And so for many of us, the very thought of a father is repulsive, or at the very least, not very encouraging, not very interesting. It's disappointing. But I want to encourage you with with two truths if you fall into that category this morning. First of all, your identity is not ultimately wrapped up in who your earthly father is. Some of you feel chained and shackled by the father you had, and you feel like this defines who you are. You feel like he's always standing over your back judging every single little move that you make. But that's not the truth. The the truth is that you are free to rejoice in your ultimate identity as a son of God the Father. Second of all, God is a perfect father. If you had a poor father, he's nothing like your heavenly father. I'm sorry, Honestly, I sympathize with you that your earthly father failed in his calling to be a picture for you of how God is a good and loving father. But please know that if you had a poor earthly father, God is nothing like him. God is a tender, loving, and firm father. He's the father that you've always longed for, and more importantly, the father that you need. I also realize that some of you here are trying to find your identity in the fact that you are a father to your children. It's an easy thing to do and I don't want to belittle the fact that being a father is certainly a part of your identity, a very important part, but it isn't the most important part. The most important part of your identity, the very essence of who you are is as a son of your heavenly father. And so the most effective thing that I can do for you the most helpful thing I can do for you fathers that are here this morning is not to stand up here and give you a list of wise how to's for being a good father even if I was qualified to do that which I'm obviously not that wouldn't be the most helpful thing I could do for you the most beneficial thing that I can do for you this morning is to remind you of your identity as a son of the living God to remind you of how un deserving each and every one of you fathers are and yet how incredibly gracious God is because fathers you will never be able to sacrificially give yourselves away for your children unless you first realize how much your heavenly father has sacrificed for you to make you his child that's where being a good father starts And that's where being a good father ends. It begins and ends with the gospel. And that's exactly what we're going to see this morning. And for those of you who are not fathers, I realize that you're going to be like, oh man, there's nothing in the sermon for me this morning, but that's not true. Here's what I ask of you. If you are a wife, be praying that your husband would relish in this truth that he would rejoice in his identity as a son of God our father realizing that you yourself are a child of God as 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 Christians if you are a single man be praying that God would make you a man who delights supremely in his identity as a son of God this is the most important thing you can do to prepare for being a father in the future because let's face it most of you in this room who aren't currently fathers will one day be fathers. Single women, be praying that God would make your future husband this type of man. That God would be instilling in him now an incredible sense of his identity as a son of God. That's the kind of guy that you ought to be looking for. Because most of you will one day get married and have children and you're going to have this guy that you're thinking about marrying, he's going to be the one that's going to be raising your kids. So no matter what your current station in life, this applies to you, in one way or another. And this morning, we're going to answer two important questions as we look at the parable of the father who had two sons. We typically refer to this as the story of the prodigal son, but that's just one side of the story. There's two sons in this story. And the two questions we're going to answer, first of all, is what kind of sons are we? What kind of sons are we? And the second question is, what kind of father is God? So what kind of sons are we? And what kind of father is God? So first of all, let's answer the question, what kind of sons are we? And there are two kinds of sons in this story. The younger son and the older son. So let's look at the younger son first. Look at verses 11 through 20 with me. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. of the culture that we currently live in, there's a lot in this story that we typically miss when we read it. And when you come to understand the cultural setting, you'll come to see what an incredible story this is. Charles Dickens went so far as to say that this story, what we know as the story of the prodigal son, is the greatest short story ever written. And so, the key to understanding it, though, is the cultural setting in which Jesus shared this story. And it's a foreign culture to us because it's a shame-honor culture. That is, you did everything in your power to avoid shame, and you did everything in your power to gain honor. Everything to avoid shame, everything to gain honor. This was the, the, the filter that affected every decision that you made on a day-to-day basis. Before you made any decision, you sat back in Jesus' day and thought to yourself, is this going to bring shame on my family and myself? Or is this going to bring honor on myself and my family? And this is very foreign to us because in many ways, you, you got to work really hard to make someone feel ashamed in this day and age, people seem to just flaunt things that are shameful, and they don 't even think twice about it and If someone tries to be honorable, we usually mock them for it don 't we But that was not the case in jesus 's day and The reason I bring this up is because at the very beginning of the story, we have the younger son bringing great shame upon his family through his actions. The story begins with the younger son telling his father that he wants his portion of the family inheritance. And this doesn't seem like a big deal to us, culturally, does it? I mean, I don't know about you, but I've actually have family members, not in my immediate family, but who've asked my grandparents before they passed away, hey, you know, can we have our inheritance early? We're starting up a, a family business and it'd be really helpful to have it now rather than later. That, that's not seen as a shameful thing. But in Jesus's day, This was an extremely shameful request because the son asking for his inheritance before his father died was the equivalent to telling him, Dad, I wish you would just keel over and die right now. I wish you would die right now so that I could have my inheritance. So what the younger son is requesting is despicable. It's downright shameful. And frankly, it was valid grounds For the father to have the son stoned to death. Did you realize that? According to Jewish law in the Old Testament, outright rebellion like this could be punishable by death. Listen to what Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21 says. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother... And though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear so it would have been socially acceptable after the son had made this request for the father to grab him by the scruff of the neck grab him to the city gate and have the elders stone him to death for this rebellious request that the son had made and I want you to realize this it wouldn't just have been socially acceptable it would have been socially expected the expectation would have been that the father would have done this but that's not what the father does does he? What does the father do? The text says that the father gives him his inheritance. He gives him his portion of what would be his if his father had passed away. Again, you have to realize culturally, this was utterly shocking. Not only does the father not have the younger son stoned to death, he goes so far as to, refill his, to fulfill his request. And this would have been exceedingly difficult. For the Father to do. Because in the agrarian culture which Jesus lives, this farming culture, land was the measurement by how wealthy a man was. You, can, you know how wealthy a man is by how much land he owned. And so for the wealthy man, his land meant everything to him. It was his life. It was his livelihood. It was his identity. They literally thought the land didn't um, belong to them. They belonged to the land. And so for the father to go and and break it up like this and liquidate it so that the father could have his portion of the inheritance would have been extremely difficult. And yet he does it. And this would have been utterly shocking to the original hearers of Jesus' story. Utterly shocking and incredibly shameful for the father to have given in to the son's request like this. And then to only add to the family shame, what does the younger son do next? He takes his newly inherited money and goes as far away from home as he possibly can. As far away as he can go, that's where he goes. And by his actions, he's saying, I don't want to have anything to do with you, dad. I'm out of here. Good riddance. See you later. And then he blows all of his money on extravagant, reckless, irresponsible living. He blows it all, every last penny until he has nothing Again, these actions brought shame upon his family. Squandering wealth was considered a particularly shameful act, especially squandering the wealth of another, such as an inheritance would be. And then, right around the same time that the younger son goes broke, a famine overtakes the entire country that he is currently living in. So in desperate need of money, he tries to find a job. And he's looking all over the place. And and, and in economic downturn, we know, because we're in one right now, it's really hard to find work. And the only work that he can find is working for a Gentile. And not just working for a Gentile, but feeding his pigs. Now, in Jewish culture, this is as low as you can get. This is the bottom of the barrel. The younger son has sunk to rock bottom, Because for the Jews, the Gentiles were way beneath them. They would refer to them as Gentile dogs. For the Jews, Gentiles were unclean, so to work for one would be a terrible insult. But on top of that, if you know anything about Jewish culture, he's feeding pigs. Pigs are an unclean animal that Jews couldn't eat or even touch. It's such a big deal for the Jews that they actually had a saying, May a curse come upon the man who cares for swine. And here the younger son is, slopping around in the muck and the mire with them. He's so destitute and hungry that he actually finds himself longing to gorge on the pods that the the pigs are chewing on, to feed on the slop that they're rolling around in. Now I want you to know that Jesus' hearers would have expected him to end the parable right there. That would have been the cultural expectation because the typical Jewish moral tale would have ended with the person who's in rebellion getting what they deserve. The son was shameful, mistreated his father, squandered his wealth, lived a licentious life, and now here he is working for Gentiles, feeding their pigs, longing to eat pig slop. That's a great moral tale. Fantastic. Teach all our kids that they shouldn't rebel against their parents, right? And the fact of the matter is, if the younger son had a typical father for that day and age, that would have been the, the end of the story. But it's not. The younger son comes to himself. He realizes his sin and he remembers who his father is. He knew his father would be gracious enough to receive him as a hired hand so that he could pay off his debts. Sure, he'd never be able to regain his status as a son, but at least his father treated his servants better than he was being treated right now. And so the younger son begins to practice his return speech as he heads back home to his father. Now, brothers, fathers here this morning, ask yourselves again that first question What kind of son are we? What kind of son are you? Are you like the younger son? If you're like the younger son, you typically have very little regard for the father and what pleases him. All you're interested in is what the father can give you. And so you give yourself over to your passions. You don't fight the desires of the flesh. You give yourself over to them. You indulge yourself in whatever your heart desires, whether that be your favorite hobby, sports team, video game, hanging out with the guys, spending money, or whatever it may be. You just love reveling like a little boy in whatever it is that tickles your fancy at the moment. If you're like the younger son, this typically manifests itself by how slack you are in shepherding your family, your wife, and your children. And most of the time, you don't really care. Who knows it? You don't try to hide it. You just don't care, period. Like the younger son, you have no regard for the shame. But your sin brings upon your heavenly father and your family. And like the younger son, you run from God. You run away from home, like Adam in the garden after he sinned. You run, like Cain after he killed his brother. You run, like Jacob after he cheated his brother and father. You run. Like Israel wandering in the desert for their sins, you run. And like the younger son, when the thought does cross your mind of coming back home to the father, you think you have to somehow pay him back. You think you have to go back as a servant or a slave and try to earn your way back into his good graces. So brothers, I admonish you, take a good hard look at yourselves this morning ask the spirit to search your hearts is that you are you like the younger son but there's also another son in the story isn't there and now let's look at him the second kind of son in the story is the older brother the older brother look at verses 25 through 31 with me now that his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, "'Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf "'because he has received him back safe and sound.' But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, "'Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, "'yet you never gave me a young goat.' That I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to the son, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So here's the scene. The older son has been slaving out in the fields all day long, and he finishes finally, and so he begins to head back to the house. And unbeknownst to him, the youngest son has returned home. He's come home, and, and the first thing he hears as he draws near the house is music and singing and dancing and just general revel- revelry. So he asks one of the servant, servants, hey, what's going on Well, what's all with all the noise? And the servant tells him that the younger son has come home and that the father is throwing him an extravagant, lavish party. I mean, to have meat in those days was a big deal. And a cow, you know, fattened calf, it's a big animal. So they wanted to eat it all. They couldn't stick it in the refrigerator. So this party was a big deal. And when the the older brother realizes what's going on, how does he respond? Does he rejoice? Does he jump in the air and click his heels that finally his younger brother is back? The anguish that his father was in is finally over? No. He's angry. He's livid. He's upset. Now why? Why why is he angry? And I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, he's morally outraged. He's morally outraged. The younger son brought nothing but shame upon the family again and again and again. He essentially told his father to drop over dead by demanding his inheritance before his death. Then he runs away to a land of Gentiles where he squanders his wealth on frivolous entertainment and prostitutes. And then he had the audacity to return home after that? And in exchange for the shame that he's brought upon the family, the father repays the younger son by throwing him a party. This just doesn't make any sense to the older brother at all. So that's the first reason he's angry. He is morally outraged. And second of all, he's angry because the older son, I want you to hear this, the older son is essentially the one who's paying for this party. Think of it. If the younger son has squandered his entire inheritance, then whose inheritance is paying for everything at the party? The older son's. Part of his inheritance is being used to pay for this party, and he's furious. He is livid, and you see it in his response. Although we we see it as somewhat understandable, don't we? Can't you relate to the anger of the older brother a little bit? I know I can. But you know what? The older son isn't any better than the younger son. The prodigal son is always the one that gets the attention. But wait until you see how shamefully the older brother treats the father. Did you notice, first of all, how he responds to his father's decision? He refuses to go into the house. Here the father throws this party and the older son refuses to go in. By doing so, he is rebelling against his father and insulting his father's dignity. Again, under the Old Testament laws found in Deuteronomy 21, the older brother could have been severely beaten or stoned for this. He's acting just as shamefully as the younger brother. And then it gets even worse. Listen to what he says in the beginning of verse 29. Look, these many years I have served you. Now, you, you, you probably missed how shameful the older brother's address was to his father, so let me make it plain for you. In the shame-honor culture of Jesus' day, if you didn't address the person you were speaking to, With the correct title, it was considered a grave insult. Grave insult. The older son should have addressed his father by saying, Father, or Sir, but he doesn't even address him. He just says, Look. Now this may not seem like a big deal to us in our shameless, informal culture, but back then, this was a huge deal. Again, this was so serious that the father could have punished the older son by having him stoned to death. And then, Just when you think it can't get any worse, any more shameful, it does. Listen to what he says in verses 29 through 30. Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Finally, the older son's true motives come bubbling to the surface the facade of being an obedient loving son that he's been able to keep up until this point is completely gone now when he sees the younger son getting something that he thinks he deserves he completely loses it and the truth comes out that he was just using the father to get his possessions he doesn't desire a close relationship with the father He wants his things. And so we see the truth finally come out that the older son is just as lost as the younger son. So brothers, ask yourselves that first question again. What kind of sons are we? What kind of sons are you? Are you like the older son? If you're like the older son, you typically have a very high regard For what pleases God, very high regard, but only insofar as you can use it to your own advantage. All you're interested in is what the Father can give you. And so you give yourself over to slavishly obeying Him. Not out of a desire of love to please Him, but out of a desire of fear to try to control Him. You don't trust that the Father is doing what is best for you in all things. You just know that He has the power to give you what you want. So you think that by obeying Him, you can put Him in your debt. And then He has to give you what you desire. If you're like the older brother, prayer for you is often like a business meeting with an important client who can give you what you want. You want to say all the right things so that you can get what you want out of the business transaction. It's not intimate communion with a loved and trusted Father who not only has the power to care for you, but the will to care for you as a son. If you're like the older son, this typically manifests itself by how diligent you are. Hear that, by how diligent you are in shepherding your family. And you want everyone to know, especially God, How diligently you go through the motions of shepherding your family. Like the older son, you have the highest regard for the honor that your good works bring upon your heavenly father and your family because you want to use them to get what you want. It doesn't terminate in the father. It doesn't end in the father. You just use that so that you can get what you want from him. If you're like the older son, you don't visibly run from God. You don't ever leave the church, but in your heart you are far from him. You're far from home. And like the if you're like the older son, you see yourself as a slave seeking to please his cruel and demanding taskmaster. So brothers, Take a good, hard look at yourselves this morning. Ask the Spirit to search your hearts. Is that you? Are you the older son? And I hope you can see that no matter what kind of son you are, whether you're outwardly rebellious, like the younger son, or inwardly rebellious, like the older son, both types are simply using and abusing God to get what they want. Both are equally lost. And both are equally in need of redemption. So we've explored the question, what kind of sons are we? And it's kind of a depressing answer, uh, answer, isn't it? But let's see some good news now. Let's answer the question, what kind of father is God? What kind of father is God? Look at verses 20 through 24 with me. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him This really is the climax of the story. And what's so incredible about the climax is how infinitely more gracious the father is toward the younger son than he ever anticipated. The father is infinitely more gracious than he could have ever imagined. Remember, the father could have had the younger son stoned to death for his presumption in coming back home after such shameful behavior. But the younger son knew his father wouldn't do that he knew his father well enough to know that he wouldn't do that his expectation was that his father would receive him back as a slave that was the typical practice if you were in debt to someone and he would never be able to pay it off but he would come back as a slave and slowly work off the debt for the rest of his life that would have been infinitely better treatment than he deserved and yet as he's on his on his way most likely kind of shuffling his feet and looking down at the ground you know, feeling pretty depressed that he's got to come back and and repent and practicing the speech that he's going to give to his father, the unexpected happens. His father runs to him. His father runs to him. Now, that doesn't seem shocking to you because in Jesus' day, noblemen didn't run. They didn't run. They just didn't. They had long flowing robes that they would wear. The wealthy, would you ever notice that the, the servants kind of wear these, these short skirt, almost like even the guys? That's so they can move around and run. The rich people, they didn't run. In order to run, you'd have to lift up this robe really high and expose your ankles, which was back then, even for guys, really shameful. And so that just didn't happen. You had servants do that instead, but the father doesn't care. He takes the shame upon himself and just runs to his son because he loves him. In compassion, he runs and embraces him. It's like he literally tackles him. The word in Greek is he falls on his neck. And he just starts to kiss him like crazy. This is an incredible scene because the son, where was he before this? He was in a pigsty. He's probably got pig feces on his clothes that have been caked on by the sun as he's walked back home. I mean, and he probably stinks. Big old nasty beard. And the father just embraces him and kisses him because this is the day he had been waiting for, the day that his son would come home. And then the son tries to spit out his return speech to tell his father that he was come back as a slave and pay off his debts. But before he even gets to finish it, the father cuts him off. Did you notice that? The the speech that he rehearsed, he didn't get to, to say all of it to the father. The father cut him off. And the father calls for the servants to immediately treat him as a son by putting the best robe on him and a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and to kill the fatted calf so that they can have a huge party that the town would never forget. Why? Because his lost son was now found, his dead son was now alive. And so the celebration began. So, what kind of father is God? He is a gracious father. He lovingly initiates relational reconciliation with both of His sons. Think about it. With the younger son, the father doesn't wait for him to come home. As soon as he sees him at a great distance, he runs to him, shamefully runs to him, and essentially tackles him with hugs and kisses. And with the older son, the father doesn't wait for him to come into the house. The father goes out, To the older son and pleads with him. Brothers, again, I ask you, what kind of son are you? If you're like the younger son, following your own passions with no regard for anyone or anything, quit running from God. Quit running from home. Go back, return to your father. And if you're like the older son, Strictly obeying God's law so you can use him to get what you want. You're farther from home than you realize. Turn your heart toward the father. Enter into his joy. You see, brothers, no matter what kind of son you are, your heavenly father welcomes you home with open arms. Now you may be thinking to yourself, Jason, you're wrong. You are so wrong. The father can't welcome me home. As a younger or older son, I deserve to die for my sins. Just as both brothers deserve to be stoned to death, so do I. I feel the weight of the guilt for my sins. Someone has to pay. Can't just be let off scot-free like that. And you're right. Someone does have to pay. And the good news this morning is that someone has paid. Jesus has paid it all. Jesus is the brother that both the younger and the older son need in this parable so desperately. Think about it. When the younger son runs from home, why didn't the older son go get him? The expectation in Jesus' day was that the older son would act as the mediator between the younger sons and the father should any uh, relational strife arise between them. The older son was the one that was to act as the mediator. So where is he? Why didn't he go search for the younger son as he was supposed to? Why wasn't he willing to spend some of his own inheritance to bring his younger brother home? especially when he saw the pain that his father was in. You want to know why? The older son didn't understand grace. Didn't understand grace at all. The older brother was a terrible brother. He was a Pharisee. And that's the whole point of Jesus' parable Jesus wants us to yearn and long as we listen to this story for a better older brother. And guess what? Jesus is the perfect older brother that we need. Jesus didn't just leave his home and go to a faraway country to bring us back, he left heaven to come to earth to bring us back to the Father. Jesus didn't just give us a physical cloak to cover our filth. He gave us his own righteousness to cover our sin and our shame. Jesus didn't just sacrifice a finite amount of money to bring us home. He sacrificed the infinite cost of his own life on the cross. You see, the deadly beating that we deserved for being shameful younger and older brothers has been met out on Jesus on the cross. The Father's just wrath was poured out on Jesus for our rebellion, all out of love that we might be reconciled to our Heavenly Father. And brothers, this good news changes everything for us. It shows us that we don't have to spend all of our time selfishly using God and others to try to get what we want for our own gain. If God has given us His own Son, how will He not also with Him give us all good things? We can trust Him and love Him because He has sacrificially done everything necessary to bring us home. You see, fathers... It's only after you see how Jesus has poured out his life for you on the cross that you can then in turn pour out yourselves for your children and for your families. It's only as you glory in your identity as sons of the Father that you can be godly fathers of sons. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called sons of God. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it should blow us away to be able to even call you that. Because by nature, we are children of wrath. We are children who, like the younger son, couldn't wait for you to die so that we could take your possessions and and take your place. Like the younger son, we don't want you. In our religious activities, we just want to go down the checklist and mark it off and show how we've put you in our debt. So that we can then demand that you give us the life that we want, the family we want, the marriage we want, the jobs that we want, the pleasures that we want. Father, we acknowledge all of us here this morning fall into one of those two categories. We all try to use you, whether in outright rebellion or by trying to put you in our debt so that you have to give us what we want. And Father, it's when we were like that, while we were still sinners, that you sent Jesus to save us. You sent him to be our older brother. And he is not ashamed to call us sons, brothers, because he has laid down his life for us on the cross. And he has clothed our filthiness and our nakedness with the robes of his righteousness. And so, Father, I pray For my brothers here this morning who are fathers of children, Lord, I pray that if any of them are in a season of rebellion, that they would see, whether they're the younger brother or the older brother, that they would see that there you stand with arms wide open, made possible because Jesus has paid the penalty for our shameful hearts, our shameful wicked deeds. And so, Father, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that you would cause a reformation to take place amongst uh, the fathers in the churches across the nations and may it start with Sovereign Grace Church of Bakersfield. Lord, only you can do this and I know that you are desirous to do it and I know that we can trust you. And so Lord, we ask this all in the precious name of our perfect older brother, Jesus our Lord and Savior.